This is Talking Beats, the podcast where dynamic and compelling people share their lives, their work, and of course, their favorite music. Welcome. I'm Daniel Lelchuk. On today's program, we're speaking with Professor of Theoretical Epidemiology at Oxford University, Sunitra Gupta, the winner of the Rosalind Franklin Award for her work, Surviving Pandemics, a Pathogen's Perspective. She has devoted her scientific life to the study of infectious disease agents that are responsible for malaria, influenza, HIV, and meningitis. In addition, she's the author of five works of fiction. I'm pleased to have her here, Sunitra Gupta. Welcome. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. You have had a very rich life, particularly your childhood, where your family moved around a lot. And I want to come to that and also your incredible talent for the creation of fiction works as well. But right now we're in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. And I I want to set the stage. It's December 31st, 2019. The government in Wuhan, China, confirms that dozens of people were being treated for pneumonia of an unknown cause. And uh, by the first week of January, a new virus was identified. Fast forward a week from that, and the World Health Organization tweets, quote, Preliminary investigations conducted by the Chinese authorities have found no clear evidence of human-to-human transmission of the novel coronavirus. Now, you, Dr. Gupta, where were you mentally during this early period, and when did you think or doubt the basics of the narrative and some of its most crucial aspects? Well, at that point, the narrative wasn't entirely in place. But, of course, we all tend to start constructing our own very preliminary assessments of what might be going on. And I took my cues in that from what I had observed with other novel viruses arising, and also the general theoretical framework within which a lot of my research is situated, which suggests that these events have to be viewed in the context of the ecology of the other viruses that they're competing with, and what kind of immunity there already is in the population, specifically against dying from the virus. So you you might get infected, but not die. And that's, of course, what's critical in a pandemic. So my gut feeling straight away, which is nothing other than that, was that it's another coronavirus. It's either going to be uh, not terribly transmissible like SARS-2 was and MERS and be, you know, kept contained and just die out very quickly. Or it might be more like the flu virus that spread globally in 2009. Essentially, you know, a novel virus in many aspects, but still belongs within this ecology, as I said, of flu viruses, and therefore didn't cause as many deaths because we were already all primed to some extent against flu. And similarly with the coronavirus, this new coronavirus, I thought, okay, it's a novel coronavirus, but if it disseminates globally, my feeling was, first of all, that it probably already has, if it's been detected now in January in uh, China, there's probably already spread given, given the links that we have with China and that it's probably not going to be terribly harmful in the context of us already having immunity to many other coronaviruses. And indeed with SARS-2, the people we saw dying were vulnerable people. So at that very preliminary stage, I thought this is probably not something we need to worry about too much. And now 
how have things changed? And I know you have been an advocate for perhaps a, a little more quick relaxation of lockdown measures and things like that. We'll get into lockdown a little later, but how has your perspective changed as you've been studying it and as you've been collecting data and looking at data as it becomes more available? And also touch on, if you can, this idea that the number of cases is a very dangerous and maybe misleading or even non-existent number at all, that, that it's the deaths that, that is the, the crucial number for you. Um, well, the thing is, it's, it's very difficult to measure the extent of the spread of a pathogen when many of the cases are asymptomatic or have symptoms that are very similar to flu. So I think what's been unfortunate in the reporting of this pandemic is the focus on how many people have tested positive because it's extremely dependent on the extent of testing and where the testing is occurring. And it's not possible to really know the extent of spread in that manner. Deaths are harder to argue with in the sense that, you know, there are certain clinical symptoms that, are the, well, that's how we assign cause of death anyway, is by a combination of exact the clinical symptoms and isolating the virus. But it's still um, complicated because, you know, and people, um, you could die with COVID rather than of COVID. And actually, the reporting has been quite careful to distinguish between those. But the other way that deaths are reported that's not helpful is just as numbers rather than as fractions of the population. So, you know, when you say, oh, the U.S. now surges of Italy, well, of course it's going to surge ahead of Italy. Population sizes are very different. But if you look at the num the actual fractions of death in most populations, they're, they're very similar. But going back to your earlier question, what do I think? Have I revised my opinion? And the answer is, I still think that is a strong possibility. There are obviously other possibilities that have been put on the table, such as the scenario that um, was presented by the Imperial College modelling crowd, the modellers here in mid-March, which is the one where there's a very high risk of death upon infection, and therefore the eventual toll is, is about half a million in this country. And what we did shortly after that was to publish, or at least put out there for public consumption, the a model, a very simple model, of which the imperial model is, is essentially a kind of special case, uh, which said that, yeah, that's possible, but it's also, you can also fit a model to the available data where the epidemic comes and goes earlier than you um, detect just by looking at deaths, because deaths occur with a two, three-week lag. And it might be that only one in a 1,000 or one in 10,000 people will actually die of this virus and that many of us have had it and are immune or are just will resist uh, resist it using our frontline defences at the outset. So there are a number of scenarios that are compatible with what we are observing out there. And my, you know, if I had to bet my bottom dollar, you guys say on something, I would go for the scenario where it's far less virulent. So I'd say that of the possible scenarios, I think what's, if I put all the jigsaw puzzles to the pieces together, I still come up with the more likely scenario being that where it is not as virulent. And it's clear now we have data about who is dying. And it's clear that it, that's mainly confined to a vulnerable fraction of the population. So putting all these things together and looking at the effects of 
interventions, lockdowns, social distancing in different parts of the world, um, and how consistently the epidemic has, or the numbers of deaths have come down, I would say that it's likely that it spreads very quickly. Those who are susceptible get it, those who don't fend it off. Those who get it don't always get ill, but overall, like many other viruses, it, it spreads through quickly and doesn't really um, have a high death toll in the general population, but it does uh, very sadly affect vulnerable people, especially if it's something that's come into a population that's taking off for the first time. You mentioned modeling before. Can you talk about the risks of modeling? Obviously, there's a certain danger in, in putting up projections. And, and what are some of the pitfalls that scientific modeling, especially when it comes to infectious diseases, can fall into? I mean, that model from the Imperial College you mentioned was absolutely terrifying that 500,000 people would be killed in the UK and more than 2 million in the US. And how is it helpful or not helpful to look at a model and put it out to the public, put it out to political leaders and say this could happen, uh, etc.? So I think that there are two approaches to modeling, um, and one is to construct as detailed a model as possible and fit it to the available data, and then make a projection based on what best fits the available data. And I'm sure that um, the imperial uh, modelers did that to the best of their abilities, and at the time, the, the data that they had, using that approach, what they projected was you know, consistent with what was available for them to, to, to um, fit their model to, this quite detailed model. That's one approach. And so, you know, there, there isn't anything as such to that I would criticise per se about, I mean, there's a lot of kerfuffle, I mean, they've been taking pot shots at them for not putting the code out and this and that. But, you know, I'd, rather than going down that road, I would just say that is a way of doing things. But it, in this case, I think it did yield what I would call the worst case scenario. Um, the other way of doing modelling is to take a very simple abstraction and look at the sensitivity of the outcome to a particular parameter. You can still fit a very simple model to some feature of the data, and that's what we did. So we said, okay, we've got a rise in deaths. You can fit a very simple model to that. Um, and what we were able to do is vary the parameter that reflected the risk of dying upon infection and show that you know any number of values of that could fit the data. And you could, at one extreme, get the imperial scenario. So the data could be fit equally well by a scenario in which the likelihood of dying upon infection was much lower. And so I think that that style of modeling doesn't, it's not very good for yielding predictions because you don't, you can't, basically what model says it could, is it could go either way. But what it is very useful for is, is saying, let's go and measure how many people have been exposed. Then we'll know which of these scenarios is more likely. And also just clarifying the range of possibilities um, at a point in time, which have to be taken into account when you are considering such a radical decision as going into lockdown. Can you talk about viral loads? It's an expression that I think a lot of people may not have heard before following uh, this virus. Viral loads and how the amount of virus one comes into contact with can impact, if at all, the severity of one's illness. Well, that's a difficult question to answer, but it's a very important question. So 
certainly with some of the reports of healthcare workers being um, coming down with severe cases of COVID, um, did certainly raise the question of whether you know repeated exposure and increased um, exp- you know getting more than the normal kind of dose of virus that you'd receive just from passing someone on the street, whether that made a big difference to the clinical outcome. It's difficult to tease that out because the healthcare workers are also generally exposed to a whole range of other coronavirus. So we've also looked at some healthcare worker situations where the risk of being infected is very, very low. So it's, and then of course there are protective measures that healthcare workers take. So it's very hard to find a natural experiment where you can say, well, you got exposed more than they did, um, but you both have the same level of immunity and both have the same level of protection um, or it's very hard to tell having said that you know in families clearly it's easier to get it from a family member but that's because you spend a lot of time with them anyway there are other issues as well about link with viral load and severity of disease and and general sort of the the outcome of infection which is that sometimes there are people who seem to not be making very strong antibody responses to the virus and that could be because they've been exposed to a small viral load, which they've been able to sort of fend off using first-line defences. That that's one possibility where viral load might not play a role in how sick you get, but in whether you get infected at all. So that these are very important questions, but that they're quite difficult to answer. I mean, you could ask the same questions of measles and flu and other diseases. How convinced are you that? That I mean, this is sort of the, the million-dollar question. How convinced are you that once you've had this, you are immune or, or close to immune? And, and if you're not immune, but you're close to immune, how do you convince a populace who is very, I would say, scared in the large part that it's okay, you're close to immune, and that's darn well good enough? Well, being close to... Well, it's a question of whether you are resisted in the first place, which many of us might be, either because just like any many pathogens, we can fend them off using our frontline defences. Or we might be resistant because we already had exposure to other related coronaviruses and that helps us um, at least diminish the, the clinical severity of disease. So the real question is, if you become immune, how long does it last and um, what does it grant? Um, there is, it, it is very possible that being immune or developing antibodies, which will then naturally decay, may well not provide enough protection that you won't get infected again. But it's also, I think from experience of other, how other viruses work, it's very likely that previous exposure will give you some defense against um, disease and death. So that's one thing to consider. And the other thing to consider is to what extent the having some um, previous exposure to the virus prevents you from transmitting it. So these, again, are questions we won't be able to answer until we um, have lived with this virus for a bit longer. But the main thing to bear in mind for the general public when they're thinking about being infected or immune to this virus is the extremely low risk in the general population of dying from it. So once you put that in your head, then questions about, am I going to be immune? How long will I be immune? You know, become framed, become very similar to questions like, you know, am I immune to the common cold? I've read a lot about certain 
symptoms and and results from having this virus that aren't respiratory related and maybe i misunderstood but it seems like many other things can happen other than pneumonia and respiratory illnesses even though it is transferred through droplets in the air when someone talks or sneezes or coughs or whatever what what it surprised you if anything about what this virus can do to the body i realize the cases are very rare but as you as you study as you read what made you wonder in a way if anything that's not surprising at all. I mean, measles is also spread by aerosol, uh, and yet it did what it causes a spot on you and horrible high fevers. So uh, many things are transmitted in that way because that's a route by which viruses can enter the body. Uh, that doesn't mean that they only cause respiratory complications. Um, indeed, anyone who's had flu will know that flu can cause very severe aches and pains, and sometimes flu can cause syndromes like Guillain-Barre, where you get you know, serious paralysis, parts of your body, which can last up to a year. So post-viral syndromes are common. Viruses, nasty viruses, dengue is another example, often cause a lot of um, hemorrhaging and um, shock in the system. So well, the, the way the immune response, uh, the, our immune system response to viruses can lead to a whole range of really quite ghastly symptoms. And it doesn't surprise me that in a naive person, naive as in never having seen the virus, um, that, and if they're vulnerable, that, that the virus can really wreak havoc with your body. I would imagine that a certain amount of creativity is needed to practice science at the level you do. And obviously, creativity is also at the heart of fiction writing. Can you compare the different kinds of creativity in those two fields and how they interlink with each other? Yeah, I think they're very similar. Well, from in, within me, anyway, they sit in a very similar place. And what I always say is that the language of science is very different to the language I tend to employ, anyway, when I'm writing fiction. So in science, I'm very interested. The language that I use is very precise, and, uh, and I feel like I failed in my project unless what I'm... I can be absolutely crystal clear about my assumptions, how I encode them, um, usually using the language of mathematics, which is an extremely precise language. So the, in science, the, the emphasis is on the avoidance of ambiguity, as it were, um, in creating the narrative, whereas in fiction, one actually exploits the ambiguity in the language that you can use in the relationship between language and reality. That, that's kind of a potent source of some of the richness in fiction. A lot of the richness in fiction, I think, arises from those ambiguities. So that's just one example of where the two differ. But as such, I think, you know, one is trying to understand the world um, uh, and create, if you like, models or, or create sort of alternative realities that in some ways tell you more about the reality itself than simply mimicking it. And that, I think, applies to both cases. Does music play an important role in your life and connect your, your passion of literature and science to your childhood? Uh, and also when music started to come into the mix, you moved around a lot as a kid. You were born in Calcutta. You lived in uh, Ethiopia, in England. How did these all connect? Yeah, m music has always played a, a central role in my life. My father was a singer. He, I guess you call him a semi-professional singer. He never took it up. Fully, but um, and he sang Indian classical music and um, particularly um, Bengali songs written by the poet Tagore, Rabindranath Tagore. 
So this was sort of part of the backdrop of my childhood, was waking up and listening to him uh, practicing on his um, bampura, and which is a musical instrument, Indian musical instrument, um, which he used as an accompaniment, accompaniment to his um, singing. So music, you know, just at that level has just been with me throughout and certainly in my um, novels, I often um, include translations of some of these songs. My first novel, in fact, I wrote mainly to, while I was listening to um, my father's songs on tape. And so they really leached into the narrative of that, um, that novel particularly. But that's something I tend to do. I have done in, in all the actually six novels I've written so far, the six being just ready, hopefully, to send out soon. So there, there's that. And then, of course, there's a much bigger question you're asking, which I'm not well equipped to answer, properly equipped to answer, but of course, about how in music you tread this interesting boundary between chaos and order, which one is doing in fiction, certainly, and uh, to an extent in science where, you know, on the one hand, you want to take this reality and, and use some very specific, precise rules to contain it. But at the same time, you want that to also allow um, this emotional realization to occur and for something to overflow beyond that and because of it. So the containing of it actually enables this kind of journey, emotional journey, which without those rules would be would not be the same journey. What are some of your favorite pieces or composers or things that you go to when you need to sort of go into another world, when you need an, an escape or when you need comfort? Well, uh, beyond, obviously, um, the, the music that I talked about, which I still, my father died 16 years ago, but I still have the recording, so there's that. Um, but in um, Western music, Brahms is uh, one of my favorite composers and in Brahms, again, I see a lot of this kind of what I've just talked about, this sort of tension between chaos and order. And, and a lot of, I find his work very experimental. Um, Schubert, well, and um, the, the sort of E-flat piano trio, which is music that um, Kubrick used so successfully in Barry Lyndon, is something that I find to be a great source of both um, joy and comfort and melancholy. Um, so those are just a few um, I, I like to um, uh, I, I like to listen to um, in, in the springtime to a Beethoven Spring Sonata. So the first day that the sun shines brightly, that, that's something I like to listen to. And Bach's Matthew Passion is something I go back to a lot, particularly the, the piece Erbarme Dieck, Mein Gott. So I mean that there's a whole range, and that's not to say, of course, that I don't enjoy more contemporary music as well. Those are all good choices. I don't think anybody would argue with the Schubert piano trio or the Bach St. Matthew fashion. Can you zoom out for a minute? What keeps you up at night worrying with regard to viruses and infectious disease? Maybe not this one. It doesn't sound like you're as worried in the long term about the COVID-19 as, as others are. But, but what does keep you up worrying? The effect of lockdown on um, particularly the um, developing countries and the underprivileged sectors of, of um, our population in more developed areas. So it, it, what keeps me up is what's going to happen to them and, you know, what, what, what I can possibly do about it because it's very little, obviously, but it, that's what is keeping up, me up right now. Are you worried about it yourself or you're assuming that maybe you've had it already or, or you're not particularly concerned about your own health if you do get it? Oh, no, no, not at all. Absolutely not. No, I'm not concerned about health. I'm concerned about starvation, hunger. I'm worried about 
um, the people who are dying, the migrant workers who are dying in overheated trains that are taking them back to the villages where they won't have enough to eat anyway. And they're the lucky ones because they don't have to walk back through the blistering heat. So um, that's what I'm worrying about. What can we be optimistic about in the next three, six months, a year, year and a half? What is something we can look forward to as we move through this? Well, I think that um, hopefully we'll have learned lessons from this that will perhaps help us rethink what um, communitarianism really is. I mean, is it about everyone collaborating to lock down and not spread a virus? Or is it actually about us going out there and risking getting this virus? Once, of course, we're assured that it's not as completely lethal. Because that that is one way that we could actually have been helping out the vulnerable people is by taking the risk of, of getting it. We need to, I think, because the economies are going to be so devastated, it, if one were to be very optimistic, it might bring back or, or put on the table new ways of addressing issues of inequality. And finally, on a slightly more superficial level, we have all been um, seeing the effects of um, living lives a bit differently, you know, taking more time to be with our families and spending more time in the garden and not flying around, dashing around, not undertaking international travel to the extent that we did. So maybe there are some very positive lessons to be learned from that. Can you connect your scientific heroes of the past 50 or 75 years to now? Who inspires you from the past 50 or 75 years? Among my mentors, I've had the benefit of having some exceptional mentors, and I've lost two of my mentors recently who were exceptional people in many ways. So Robert May, who was my mentor from when I was an undergraduate at Princeton University, um, taught me the ropes and how to use mathematical models to understand infectious diseases. So he, he was quite a remarkable person, and he taught me so many of the principles of how you can use simple abstractions to understand complex systems. And the other person I'm thinking of is the head of medicine here in Oxford, David Weatherall, um, with whom I had the pleasure of working on certain diseases uh, like sickle cell anemia. And he was just an extraordinary person in the way that he conducted science and his responsibilities to younger scientists. So both of these people had very strong responsibilities to younger colleagues, thought about women in science very carefully. And so I will I think I'd have to name them ahead of all the other sort of, you know, big figures one can um, trot out. Professor Sunitra Gupta, I thank you very much. Thank you for asking. You've been listening to Talking Beats. The music discussed today is available in a playlist on my Spotify or anywhere you get your music. The original music is composed by Ronald Markham. The producer is Doug Christian. I'm Daniel Melchuk. See you next time.